The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we're heading to London, England, around the turn of the century. In recent news, a schooner traveling from Eastern Europe arrived at the docks with everyone aboard found gruesomely murdered, except for a raving lunatic in the cargo hold, who has since been sent to Seward Sanatorium where he spends his days craving flies and spiders. Meanwhile, a mysterious new tenant, a count from the faraway land of Transylvania, has taken up residence next door in Carfax Abbey. After a number of women are suddenly taken ill, some of whom have ended up dead, a professor, Van Helsing, suspects there is a Nosferatu, a vampire, in their midst. Perhaps it is the silver-tongued Count who has taken a strange interest in Dr. Seward's daughter, Mina. Be sure to grab your crucifix and some wolfsbane because we're going vampire hunting as we discuss Dracula. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? I'll show you who I am and what I am! <laughs> You're insane. I tell you, I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf! By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. He went for a little walk. He face. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spectacular characters and films in the Universal Studios classic monster series. Today we're talking about Todd Browning's 1931 production of Dracula, starring the iconic Bela Lugosi. I'm the invisible Dan Colon, and joining me as always is my co-host, fellow child of the night, Monster Mike Manzi. How are you, Mike? Good evening, Daniel. I'm very good, very happy to be here. That's my... Dracula impression, hey. That's not a bad Dracula impression. I, I was tempted to intro the show with a bit of an accent myself. <laughs> if we get one in the movie, we'll get there. Yes, yes, I was so happy for that. This film is, of course, based on Bram Stoker's original 1897 novel, Dracula, as well as the 1924 Broadway play written by Hamilton Dean and then later revised by John L. Balderston. Now, I have to admit, I've never read Bram Stoker's novel, although I've always wanted to, nor have I ever seen the play. My experience with Dracula has been primarily through film, whether it be this 1931 production or the Francis Ford Coppola film from 1992. But Dracula is one of those larger than life characters who's just so ingrained in popular culture from films to breakfast cereal, it's hard to avoid him whether you're a horror fan or not. Now, can you remember where your journey with Dracula began? Probably Sesame Street, right? With the Count. Yeah. I've been joking. Before I could talk, I've been exposed to vampires. And that's kind of incredible. Like, it's so ingrained in popular culture, like on every single level from baby to adult. You know, I obviously didn't realize it at the time that it was referencing Dracula or anything like that. The first time I was probably, you know, conscious of Dracula himself as like a public figure or something sort of referencing him was still a child, a little older, but maybe like Count Duckula. Okay. That was like a cartoon sort of around the time of like Danger Mouse and it was a comic I used to collect. And then, yeah, the Bram Stoker Dracula movie is 
pretty much the one that I got familiar with the character through. I also have not read the novel. Uh, I mean, I only hear amazing things about that book, the way that it's sort of like a found footage novel. I mean, I don't really know how else to describe it. It's it's mixed media, from what I understand, correspondences and, and letters and all kinds of different like clippings and stuff. Sounds really awesome. And I, I didn't get to this one until I started to explore the Universal Monsters a little more after high school, around college, that sort of time, and instantly fell in love. I think the film Ed Wood was also kind of a big influence on me and understanding Dracula and leading me sort of more towards appreciating Bela Lugosi in general. I love vampires. I love all sort of iterations of them. I love how, as a creature, it fits into every nook and cranny of all types of cultures, and it can just be switched and changed to appropriate anything at this point. But yeah, it is, it's really good stuff. So I really, I've always liked Dracula. Yeah, at Satan's You, I pretty much started my vampire journey with Sesame Street. And I think that's true of most people. And growing up, I wasn't exposed to Dracula specifically, but of course, vampires are so ingrained in popular culture, and they're all drawing, or most, a lot of them are drawing from this one film, and and, and Bela Lugosi's iconic performance, that by the time I eventually got to this film, I felt like I was very familiar with it already. Now, technically, it does some things that I wasn't expecting. You know, it's a very different type of film, but all of the hallmarks of Dracula and who he is and how he dresses and how he speaks, like all of that was like, it was like putting on an old sweater, you know, like I felt very much at home. But I think the first time I ever saw Dracula, like again, with all of these movies, it's hard for me to pinpoint where I first saw them. My best guess was probably in 2004, 2005. I had not seen it in the theater when it had come out, but I did buy the DVD of Van Helsing, the Hugh Jackman movie. The reason I bought this particular copy of Van Helsing was because it came with the original Dracula, the original Frankenstein, and the original Wolfman. There was a part of me that was like, okay, I'm going to buy this one movie, but I'm getting these three other movies that I really want to see also. So I justified my purchase that way. So I want to say that my first experience with the 1931 Todd Browning Dracula was right around that time. That's my best guess as to where my journey started with this film. Excellent. Uh We might actually get to that movie one day because it's trying to be in canon 70 years later or whatever it's doing. Like, it tries to be a continuation of these films. So very interesting. Gabriel Van Helsing. That's a fun one. Lord willing, we will get to that. Yeah, I would definitely like to do at least a bonus episode on Van Helsing at some point. I think that'd be fun to revisit. I don't think I've watched it in years. Okay, so let's kind of get into the production of Dracula. It was not nearly as tumultuous as The Phantom of the Opera was, but it did have a pretty interesting story. It was based on the original 1897 novel Dracula, or like that's where we're going to start. Then there were multiple versions of Dracula since then. There were a couple plays. I know Bram Stoker wrote his own theatrical adaptation. I think it was called Dracula the Undead. And it wasn't nearly as popular, but then we had the play written by Hamilton Dean. He sort of adapted it for the UK. And then John L. Balderston did some revisions to it, kind of changed some characters, did his own kind of cleanup of it. And then it came to Broadway. And that's where Bela Lugosi, who was living in the United States at the time, he had left his home country of Hungary to pursue acting, which was, like many actors, was a huge disappointment to his parents. But he landed the role of Count Dracula in that production of Dracula on Broadway, stuck with that show. And as it toured across the country, he happened to be in the right place at the right time in Los Angeles when uh, Universal Studios started casting for this film. So I thought that was kind of interesting, that there were all of these, like, play versions of Dracula. There's about 30 years, just just over 30 years' time, 
in between the, the publishing of the novel and then the, this film coming out. So we had a couple plays. And then, of course, we had a few film adaptations. The first one being a 1921 film called Dracula's Death. Now, that was had virtually nothing to do with the novel. I think they just sort of took the Dracula name, attached it to the title, and then kind of did their own vampire story, probably cashing in on the name of Dracula, similar to the way Italian Westerns capitalized on the popularity of Django. So that is how it reads to me anyway. That film is unfortunately lost, so we may never get a chance to uh, actually see that. But then, of course, the most famous Dracula ripoff of all time came in 1922 with Nosferatu, F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu. I think it's more of an unlicensed version than a ripoff. I would like to be just a little more respectful to Nosferatu. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But they did go to great lengths to steal great swaths of this story and then try to play it off like they hadn't. So however you want to characterize that Nosferatu does remain one of the most iconic, brilliant examples of German expressionism of all time. So I don't mean to give it a short shrift by calling it a ripoff, because I definitely love Nosferatu, and it's it clearly influenced a lot of vampire films uh, that came after it as well. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that there was such sort of a rights issue at the time with the character and the material of Dracula. It's something I didn't consider would be such a problem back then. You know, I mean, it is the 1920s. Like, it's not like they're not sophisticated people or anything, but I mean, it's just something you hear so much about nowadays, especially especially like we're dealing with trying to get a new Friday the 13th movie made and you know the rights to that is just in limbo you know there's just so hard to understand what goes on with this sometimes and it is also very interesting to hear that Bram Stoker was thinking about adapting it or try to bring it into other mediums right so he's like oh I wrote it as the novel but let me try it as a play as well like let's see if it can sort of transfer over into another form or something uh, so that's very interesting and organic to the point to where we are now with like the film coming out and everything and now where we are today with the legacy and, and how much it's endured so it's really cool how much it just has been able to transcend every step of the way yeah i wasn't aware of how popular the story was from its original publication but the fact that there were multiple plays and multiple film adaptations within that 30 year span i think is pretty telling about the popularity of that story let's get into this 1931 universal production universal was considering Dracula as a project for them as early as 1915. The original plan was to, or, or you know, at least the inkling of whatever this thought was, was to uh, adapt Dracula as a silent film, and they were going to cast Conrad Veidt, who listeners may know from The Man Who Laughs. And he's also um, going to co-star with The Invisible Man in Casablanca. So that's pretty funny. <laughs> right. Both in that movie. That was sort of the earliest effort, and it didn't really gain any traction. By the time the 1931 production got underway, Conrad Veidt went back to Germany. He didn't really have much confidence in his ability to be an actor in an, in, in an era of sound films because he had a very thick German accent. So by the time this production officially got underway, he was kind of out of the picture. Something I learned about Universal at the time... so. Carl Lemley produced Phantom of the Opera. He also produced, before that, Hunchback of Notre Dame. And then, before this production had begun, he gave his son, for a 21st birthday present, the head seat of Universal Studios, which is the most egregious example of nepotism I may have ever heard of. Thankfully, Junior Lemley was a horror fanatic. That's all I gotta say. Like, he tried to use his power for the good. Right. Despite Carl Sr.'s, you know, work on Hunchback and Phantom of the Opera, he really wasn't a fan of dark, macabre horror stories. So had he not made this move, we may not have the Universal Monsters. Amazing. 
Yeah, I think about what you mentioned a little bit about Phantom, about sort of the uh, romantic overtones. Like, I don't think they were going for horror. I think you're right. And even with Hunchback. So I think Senior and Junior had these sort of differentiating points of view about the tone of these things, right? And the son just knew how to push it to the next level and say, like, no, like, let's get get more gothic with this. Like, let's go scary. Very interesting stuff. Yeah, it's wild. And, like, I never knew this because they don't build him as Carl Lemley Jr. on the one sheets on all the posters it just says carl lemley so for years i just assumed that it was the same carl lemley i was happy to discover that that wasn't the case i learned something here and it was actually carl lemley jr who he spearheaded this whole like monster thing and uh also kind of contributed to nearly bankrupting universal studios but we'll definitely get to that so there's pros and cons to this move but because of it we did get dracula the way carl jr was able to convince his dad to to go in for adapting this was he agreed to cast lon cheney as dracula right carl senior insisted on Lon Chaney as Dracula. So what a movie that could have been. And not only that, but in this particular version of the film, Lon Chaney would have played Dracula and Van Helsing. No kidding. Oh, that would have been crazy. I mean, they would have had to get into some split screen trickery as well. And I imagine Dracula would not be sort of as uh, squeaky clean, or at least as um, he'd probably have way more makeup effects going on and get a little bit closer to like Gary Oldman's look than what we have here. It'd be interesting to see that. Right. Well, we can sort of thank Hamilton Dean and John Balderston for the way Dracula looks because of their particular adaptation for the stage. They sort of leaned into the the more theatrical elements of Dracula himself and and just vampires. And they made him more of like a stage magician than a monster. Yeah. That's like the origin of that idea of Dracula because in the Bram Stoker novel, he's described as having like a long mustache and like really horrible breath and he's very ugly. Uh, Nosferatu actually kind of leaned into that reading of Dracula as a vampire. I think he's the most realistic version based on Bram Stoker's original novel. Yeah, like uh, Nosferatu's got like, he looks like almost like a rack man. Like, but you know, this guy, Bella does not have fangs, pointy ears. There's nothing really warped about his appearance that you would expect. Like, he looks like you and me. Like, he's just a normal, well, not I mean, he's a very attractive looking guy, but you know what I'm saying? Like, he is... He, he can blend in. Uh, and that's almost scarier because you don't know who the enemy is at that point. Right. I was going to say, and we can definitely get into why this was such a good thing, or at least for this particular production. But like, I really love that about this film is that Dracula doesn't appear to be a monster. You know, we know that he's the monster. And it almost plays to that idea of, I'm trying to remember what it was. I think Hitchcock said like a bomb going off under a table is like a shock. But if you know the bomb is there, that's suspense. And throughout this whole movie we know dracula is uh, a vampire but nobody else in the movie knows i mean they have ultimately come to suspect it but for like the first half of the movie we know this thing this creature of the night is stalking people in london and there's nothing we can do to stop him it's also very interesting how much of what's become iconic about him has been derived from the stage play and sort of condensing and adapting the novel and sort of evolving the, the story and stuff so like you're saying the way that he is not grotesque and you know they had to probably change that because it wouldn't read as well on the stage and it's just funny how well that adapts to the screen especially at the time when we're dealing with sort of early well it's early sound it's not early cinema well it's still early ages of cinema but like now we're into the sound era and everything so we're 
refiguring out a lot of the techniques and mechanics of filmmaking. It's just funny how there's sort of almost like um, it feels a little like they filmed the play while watching this at times. And I think that's a benefit to this material and the story and everything so far. Yeah, I know based on what I know from the about the novel is, is that once Dracula arrives in, in London, he's really kind of a background character. You know, you get the whole story from Mina and John Harker and uh, Van Helsing and, and Dr. Seward. You know, you don't really get much of Dracula as a, as a main character. But because I'm assuming because just the challenge of adapting that story for the stage, how can you have a Dracula adaptation on stage without much Dracula? I guess you, you could do it, but I think the choice to have him push to the forefront and make him this charming, handsome, deceptful character is, is just a brilliant move. Yeah, that's how you like use another medium to your advantage. You don't just repeat what you did with the book, right? You don't keep them in the background like you did in the novel and like it's it works for for literature like that but like you know this is a play it's a visual medium like you need to see him more often and now's your opportunity to sort of fill in the gaps like what's he been up to well you weren't reading about him here's what he's been doing kind of situation i guess that would have been the case no matter who they had cast as dracula i think but lon cheney definitely would have been a very different looking vampire he definitely would have leaned into the makeup i mean that was his shtick i find it hard to believe that he would have performed this role this dual role and have one of them not be like kind of covered in makeup or hair or prosthetic of some kind. I'm sure he saw Max Shrek and was like, that's amazing, right? Like being a man of makeup and stuff and like seeing what Max Shrek looks like in Nosferatu. I'm sure like that was probably on his mind as a conceptually like something to draw from. For sure. But I think the challenge there would have been how do you have this character still be charming and a man about town? The reason Lon Chaney was not Dracula and Van Helsing ultimately is because he passed away of cancer. There are many different stories as to specifically how he got cancer or what kind of... I've, I've heard everything from lung cancer to throat cancer. There's a little bit of uncertainty as to how he specifically died, but we know he died before this movie went into production. And there, there were a lot of actors being considered for this role. Bela Lugosi just happened to be in town as they were casting Dracula. And, you know, this was a role that he was very, very proud of. I mean, anybody who has seen Ed Wood, I mean, that's one of the true accurate things about Bela Lugosi in that film, because so much of that is, is fabricated. But he really loved being Dracula. And, and that was the one thing he was remembered for most. I think he was always very proud of the fact that his Dracula was more popular than the book Dracula and any other version of Dracula. He really wanted this role. The studio was really not interested interested in him at the time, but the reason he got the role, in addition to lobbying so hard for it, was that he agreed to get paid basically peanuts for the role. I think he made something about $500 a week to play Dracula. And, and it's amazing to me that this is a guy who's been doing this for like almost two years, touring the country even, and like getting great reviews, like to think that they wouldn't want him to play Dracula is kind of confounding. I mean, you don't always get that nowadays either. I mean, I think of like Lin-Manuel Miranda, right? Like, why wouldn't you get him to be in Hamilton the movie uh, situation kind of right. going on, you know? Like, it just seems like serendipitous. Like, he's right here. This is the guy. I think part of it was due to budget constraints as well. I know Carl Lemley Jr. would have been happier to have a more iconic film actor play the role, I'm sure. Universal spent $40,000 to make this movie which was double what their normal A pictures cost to make. Twice as expensive to make as anything else they were making. And this was also during the Great Depression as well. So it's not like they had a ton of money to spend. When Bella Lugosi agreed to a very small uh, salary, you know, I think they just felt this was the most economical choice. 
Once you lose Lon Chaney, who, you know, we talked about how huge he was as an actor at the time, you know, what do you do? And so I think that, you know, they cast Belagosi, who was very popular on stage. And I think that uh, with that move, they must have felt really confident in the film by having selected Todd Browning to direct the film. He was a huge silent film director. You know, he had done tons of silent films. He worked with Lon Chaney a lot as well. So, like, there's probably a connection there where the studio's like, well, this guy knew Lon and worked close with him so maybe some of that's going to rub off on his directing Bella the way we wanted him to play Dracula and all that kind of stuff. It's so funny because the first time I watched this movie I was surprised that it was Todd Browning because I had known that name from a bunch of his other films uh, specifically Freaks which was a huge movie for me in high school. I mean shout out to the Ramones first of all for (laughs) referencing them for getting me to, to seek that movie out and everything but I became like a fan. I've seen a bunch of his silent stuff the Unholy Three, I think I was telling you about the other day, is a really good one. Right, and he, he also directed London After Midnight, which I believe we talked about in Phantom of the Opera. That was another Lon Chaney, Todd Browning team-up, which we will probably never see. <laughs> well, I, I recently heard like Scorsese talking about nitrate films, and aside from most of them exploding, a lot of them were turned into products, some of which were guitar picks at the time so it's kind of nuts right i know uh george melier's uh, a lot of his films he sold that were and they were melted down into shoe soles so yeah it, it's very possible london after midnight became soles on somebody's feet so universal had this film with virtually a cast of no big stars but they had todd browning and they had carl freund who was the cinematographer for a number of really incredible films most notably the Gollum and metropolis and at the time he was really the pioneer of moving cameras. You know, at the time, the camera didn't really move. It would just kind of stay on the tripod. They'd roll the camera and all the action would happen in front of it. Carl Freund was one of those early cinematographers who decided to move the camera around. And I think because of him, Dracula is that much better. Because, you know, Dracula, in a lot of ways, it's a silent film. I've heard multiple times that it is it is the first supernatural horror film of the sound era. So it's still, it exists in that transitionary period between silent films and talkies. I love that Carl Freund was there to really take this film, which in, like I said, in a lot of ways is a silent film, to another level artistically by moving that camera around. It really is shocking to me, like watching it this time being like, especially the shot at the sanitarium where the camera is just flying all around I'm like what is going on here because I know some film history and it's like you had to hide microphones and the sound like would pick up everywhere and the camera could not move because it was loud and so whatever mechanical device that was on was going to make a lot of noise that was moving it around and so like those shots in this movie the tracking shots the moving camera make it feel so modern and striking like the imagery stands out that much more and about like the silence it's really this is a movie sort of stuck between worlds like between the silent era and the sound era but there's a beautiful thing going on with sort of the lyric of dialogue in this movie like everything Dracula says is like a quote it's beautiful like a lot of the dialogue from everyone else like they're telling these really interesting stories and these creepy elaborate ways Uh, and and lots of accents in this movie too right to really color the sound of it so you know we get Bella's accent we have Hungarian villagers we have the orderly at the sanitarium is like got the big thick British accent we have like Mina and Jack with their British accents like it's really interesting like it doesn't need music to my ears, I'll tell you that. 
No, I actually really like the way the silence is used in this. I think that was part of the brilliance of Todd Browning, his direction, because it's so understated. And, and, and I think that was just a Todd Browning thing. He was so used to silent films that, you know, this film has a very understated method to it. Like it adds realism to this story that is so otherworldly. It feels like uh, it's the naturalism, right? Like in real life, music isn't playing all the time. And that's what Dracula starts to feel like. It starts to feel like you're there watching this in the room with people. Right. And, th and one of the things like... To, to sort of address what you were talking about with like some of the dialogue, I think with silent films where you always, you had to have these cards with the text on them, right? So we knew what people were saying. The dialogue in a silent film has to be very specific. Like every line of dialogue has to drive the story forward. They, it has to be very economical because you can't just have text all up on the screen the whole movie. So I think that benefits this movie to a great degree in that everything everybody says here when they do speak is very important. And, and I think that's also why the, like all of the dialogue just sounds really sharp and beautiful so i love that i totally agree like uh, they're still figuring it out it's all an evolution and it's it's a new tool to play with sound and so is the absence of sound like keeping that around and i think they knew that they were trying to make something with a specific tone and the silence adds a lot of drama that i guess they you know that they otherwise don't really have the time to explore in in possibly the way that they would want it like this movie is super condensed like not only is the story condensed but it's like barely an hour and a half it's like an hour and 17 minutes you could watch this twice and still be watching the phantom of the opera but i totally agree like there's something just so unique about it technically with the tools available and what they're able to do again i feel like horror is always sort of going to be on the forefront of the medium and this is no exception even way back in 31 when you know they were they were still forming the genre for sure and in a lot of ways this movie does play as a silent film i know that there's a, a silent version of this film that was sent out to theaters in certain markets where the, the theaters were not equipped for sound yet it was that early in this whole like transition a separate silent version was put out and it has the text cards for all the dialogue that version is unfortunately not on the disc that i have so i didn't get a chance to watch that but the disc i think we both watched this it's a version of the film with a score that had been composed by philip glass in the 90s and it was performed by the chronos quartet which most people would probably know from the requiem for a dream score philip glass composed this like full string score for dracula he was kind of channeling the, the sort of scores that were coming out at the time in the 1930s and wanted to do like a real throwback kind of vintage sounding score. So he wrote it that way intentionally to be done by a, a string quartet. The Kronos Quartet recorded it. What did you think of this sound score over this mostly silent film? It's just a novelty to me. It doesn't add anything, but it's like a, it's a really weird curiosity. I ended up watching the whole movie like that. You know, I watched every version again for the podcast uh, just to keep it real. And by the end... I wouldn't say it like grew on me, but it's not terrible. It, it kind of works in its own way. It's just this really weird version that's out there that I could kind of give or take. Like, it's so strange that I, I don't come down hard on either side of this thing, that ultimately it seems unnecessary, but definitely makes sense that it's the 90s that this sort of happened. Definitely makes sense that it's like the Requiem for a Dream uh, orchestra. I mean, just play the Requiem for a Dream soundtrack under Dracula. 
<laughs> that would be intense. You know, if I ever watch this again, it's going to be the original way. I- I'm never going to listen to this score. It doesn't like ruin it or, or offend it to any great deal either. I watched the film with that score, and I also listened to the score independently so that I could have an opinion just on the music. I think that the score is perfectly fine. I think it's a beautiful score. However, I really did not like the score playing on top of the movie. I found it to be distracting. I, I think I literally wrote there's wall to wall music. I couldn't get into the suspense of the film because I was so distracted by the music that was playing. It plays almost through the entire thing. It's not like movies nowadays where you get score that to emphasize uh, emotional beats. This is music for the entire thing. That's part of the problem is that it's like a silent film version of a score where, like you said, it's wall to wall. It's every inch and every beat and every bar is composed of sound. Whereas like, yeah, if he tried to compose it like a 90s horror movie, it would not play nearly the same way. It took me out of the film and so much about what I love about this film. I've seen criticisms of the film for this, but like, you know, I like that it's very quiet, uh, which some people say is makes it feel slow. I love all of that. Like when I watch this movie unadulterated, there are moments where if I'm like really invested in this film and it's quiet and somebody taps me on my shoulder, I might jump out of my seat. I don't have time to feel that same sense of tension if there's music playing all throughout. I would be interested to hear this score play over the silent version of the film, like the completely silent version. It might play differently. But the fact was, you know, I watched this movie with the score and all of the actors talking through it. I think at one point, like towards the end of the film, when you hear Dracula's death groan, I couldn't really hear it because of the music. And I thought that really took away from that scene in a big way. It's fun to watch once, I guess. So, you know, if you've seen Dracula a lot of times and you really want to see a different version of it or see something done differently with it, check out this version with the score. I think I think the score by itself is perfectly fine. I, I really enjoy it. But yeah, I, I don't think I enjoyed the film with the score as much as you did. I mean, I think we both agree it was it's more of a curiosity than anything. Let's do a quick rundown of the cast. We've got Bella Lugosi as Count Dracula. We have Helen Chandler, Philadelphia native go birds as mina seward david manners as john harker now david manners he's going to come up in the future on this podcast the brilliant dwight fry as renfield and uh, i think if i get a vote dwight fry will be the patron saint of this podcast yes let's just say it right now that dwight fry steals the show i i'm sorry but renfield in this is just incredible 100 could not agree more edward van sloan as Van Helsing. Now, this is interesting. Edward Van Sloan and our next actor, Herbert Bunston, who played Dr. Seward, both of those actors came from the Broadway production with Bela Lugosi. Those three had originated those roles on stage and were all brought into the film, which I thought was pretty cool. I love the character and the portrayal of Van Helsing in this so much. I remember from the 92 version that we had Anthony Hopkins as like the, the slovenly Van Helsing and everything yes. like that. But like, it was so it's so great to see him here. I love his character so much. And I think that this guy is great as well. Yeah, Edward Van Sloan is great. And again, we're going to talk more about him in subsequent films. But I was a bit shocked the first time I saw this because my impression of Van Helsing, the vampire hunter, was not this like old, man professor yeah it's hugh jackman right it's like it's wolverine why isn't this guy a young buck out there you know with his little page sort of like his little poncho villa carrying his weapons for him right but you know he relies on his intellect not his uh, like his brain over his brawn i love him because he's like he's a man of science right but he also like won't dismiss 
He's a skeptic. Exactly. It's like he's both of the X-Files rolled into one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's perfect. That's what I was just about to say. It's like Mulder and Scully, all like one character. So yeah, I love Edward Van Sloan in this. So we have Francis Dade as Lucy Weston, Joan Standing as Nurse Briggs, and Charles K. Gerard as Martin, the attendant in the sanatorium. The orderly, right? Maybe my third favorite in line here, if not because like uh, this guy here, he's the pure comic relief, right? Like we were talking about Phantom last time about how they were trying to inject more comedy into it to sort of balance out the horror and stuff. They may have gone a little overboard with this character because he is like legit talks like Mary Poppins. He's like, oh, governor, oh, so you Dracula over there, I do. It's crazy. I love it. But I mean, you know, it's kind of like Looney Tunes. (laughs) Yeah, but I think he's used really well in this. He only has a couple moments in this film. Now, again, the movie's only an hour and 17 minutes, so even a couple moments can can seem like a lot more. You know, one of the biggest problems that the studio had with this story was just how like dark and macabre and gruesome and terrifying the material was. For the most part, this film doesn't have a ton of comic relief. This one character is all we've got, and I think the moments they give him to really cut that tension are absolutely perfect. Most notably, when he's with the nurse and you know she's like they're crazy like they're all crazy you know and i sometimes i have my doubts about you i i laugh out loud every time he says that yeah he's probably also the closest to the average theater goer right like right you know lower to middle class guy working wage job average intelligence doesn't believe in like hocus pocus kind of stuff look at these you know rich folks and their crazy problems they're getting up to and all that kind of thing so uh that was really interesting plus it also like i was saying with accents earlier it leans into the, a lot of that too that's another thing which i thought was a pretty interesting stroke of genius is that this is an american film but it's not set in america like by setting it in london and getting the setting like and then maybe it's part partially because of the novel setting as well but they could have done anything they wanted but i mean it's just such a great addition to the look with the london fog and all of that kind of stuff that you get as well to go along with the atmosphere yeah you know i, I look at the production design of this film and it's clear that this has influenced just about every classic horror trope everything from hammer gothic films to saturday morning cartoons anything that is spooky has like castles and bats and full moons and fog. And- but, but even like guys in top hats with canes and capes, I don't trust. Like I was getting a very from hell vibe at parts <laughs> yeah. of, in parts of this movie, you know? Well, yeah, the novel would have been published right around that time. So yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. But I, I think the film takes place a little bit further in the future. The novel I said was published in 1897. But when we cut to London uh, after Dracula's journey, we hear car horns. So that's like, that's our only clue that this is early 1900s. Cars exist in London. So they don't give us a year, unfortunately. I tried to do some research. I'm sure the 1897 novel is set around that time, but I think Universal updated it a little bit so that it could be set modern day for the most part. I'm sure that added to some of the, the scariness of the time. Yeah, and I I think that was a smart idea, you know, whether it was an intention or not, because like it being the turn of the century and like so many things are changing and like people are, you know, I think they'll get into this a little bit more, even with the idea behind the character of Dracula and like the xenophobia behind it. And like, and it's a lot easier to travel different places and stuff. And so it just feels like a more worldly setting for him, like to set it at the turn of the century when so much action is already going on in the world, to have a character like Dracula emerge and sort of represent present all these fears about the drastic changes happening in the world around that time is is 
pretty interesting. Yeah, that's exactly right. I actually read something about that. I should preface this by saying, like, in England at the time, there was this incredible sense of xenophobia because there were a lot of people from foreign places, like, moving in. And, like, I feel like that is something that has persisted over the years. Like, up till today, we still struggle with, with those feelings and those anxieties. I think people at the time would have seen Dracula and really related to that. And in addition to that, this came out during the Great Depression, right? So Dracula is literally sucking the life out of these people, much in the way that the Depression, in a metaphorical sense, sucked all of the life out of people in the world, you know, obviously people in the United States. So I think it's interesting how you can read this one story in a couple different ways because of the time period it came out. And this movie, whether it means to or not, sort of touches on all of that, right? Like right at the beginning, Dracula can be, you know, examined in all of these different ways. It's not like you have to wait 10 years to think of a new way to interpret him. It's like he's so current right out of the gate. We're still having the same issues in society today that, you know, Dracula can, is, has been trying to solve. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And on top of that, it's almost as a um, total contrast against the Phantom of the Opera. We have a monster here who is incredibly charming and incredibly attractive. And I mean, that was done also with the intent of drawing in more women into the audience. They intentionally added some sexiness to this film, which I think is just an interesting choice, but it has become the thing, almost one of the defining characteristics of vampires ever since. Anne Rice certainly made a fortune off of this idea of sexy vampires. I mean, uh, Edward in Twilight, he's a dreamboat, you know, like it's, yeah, it's one of the vampire defining traits to this day is just how attractive they are, even if they're incredibly not. It's really cool to see that going on here at the start too. That about covers the pre-production part of this. And now we can kind of get into the plot. And there's some other stuff that I want to get into, but we can kind of get to it as we get to these various plot points. This production of Dracula begins in Transylvania. I think most begin in Transylvania. But unlike the novel and other productions, other more faithful productions of Dracula, we have Renfield, who is traveling out through the Eastern European countryside to meet with Count Dracula to arrange the purchase of Carfax Abbey in London. In the novel, it's Jonathan Harker, but in this version, it's it's Renfield, and I think that was a smart choice because it really ties Dracula to Renfield in a way that makes a lot more sense than in the original version of the story. Because I know in the in the novel and in, in Francis Ford Coppola's film, Renfield has already been driven mad. He has returned from Transylvania and he's already in the sanatorium and he's having dreams and he's hearing his master's voice. And I think that it's much more terrifying to, to watch the evolution of Renfield happen in front of you. Because Dwight Fry is like this incredibly charming young man heading out to do his job. And then, you know, of course, later we see him just cackling and ranting and raving and it's it's an incredible performance from him and a really interesting transformation yeah i, I agree with you 100 percent. i'm almost down with like all of the condensing that's been going on here and to be quite honest like when, maybe it's something that's lost between the book and the film but when i watch bram stoker's the 1992 francis Ford coppola dracula i've always been a little sort of like confused about wait a minute someone's already been to visit dracula and he's come back but and he came back insane and yet someone else is still gonna go like finish up all the business and stuff it's like i really enjoy this like replacing jonathan right it's john yeah he's john harker in this film but in the novel and in subsequent adaptations he's jonathan harker yeah i much more prefer seeing what happens to renfield like this is the right way to go for sure this character is 
destroyed from beginning to end of the movie you see a man lose his mind and one of the most convincing performances ever to this day like it's it's on the level of like Hannibal Lecter shit like it's beyond that I absolutely agree I love this I love the opening I love all the glass matte paintings and everything I love the sets and it's just gorgeous to watch this movie right from the start yeah actually the matte paintings because I made a note about that because I really love those too everything that you see in the film was done in camera so I think with the mountains and then there's a shot of the carriage heading towards Dracula's castle you see the castle in the background my understanding is that it was all painted onto like a piece of glass it would get fixed right in front of the camera where it needed to be and then the action could pass you know underneath of it and it would give the illusion of the incredible landscapes and super early green screen technology right I mean and that's a lot got to be coming from Carl Freud too because if you watch like behind the scenes of Metropolis the whole movie is like a painting oh for sure I'm convinced that Carl Freund deserves more credit than he gets he did work really late into his career I, I learned today and he even went on to like be the cinematographer for I Love Lucy and created basically the whole system of shooting sitcoms like these techniques are still used today so Carl Freund love that guy arguably also was the director of this movie i don't know did you have you heard the multiple accounts of this yeah so it's really interesting there's sort of dueling audio commentaries on this disc like there couldn't be more sort of opposing points of view about certain things and one of them is about like the true director of this movie now i understand where i think they're coming from when whoever says carl freund might have directed some of this this is an incredibly technical operation going on and i think for him to maybe do some of the camera work he could have operated as sort of a, a first unit or second unit director kind of capa- or assistant director even where he was quite literally directing the action while Todd Browning was directing the emotion. That's sort of where my mind kind of went to when people started saying, oh, Todd Browning didn't direct all of this movie. Uh, I think it had to do with uh, stuff that was more technical. I think it had to do with sort of a level of seniority and who was more comfortable doing what. And I also think probably came down from the studio. I don't know that the studio was too happy with Browning 100%. I also heard things about that. Like, I don't know exactly what's, what was going on with these rumors or anything, but whatever the combination of director was, like, it's kind of a masterpiece. So, like, you know, I don't know who, who you credit in the end, but I give them both lots of credit. Yeah, my inclination is to believe that the true story is probably somewhere in the middle. We know that Carl Freund had a lot of experience behind the camera and probably could have directed this film if need be. We know he, he went on to direct The Mummy after this. So he had it in him to be a film director and we know that Todd Browning, being mostly a silent film director, was really uncomfortable once sound took over. You know, he only made, I think, six more films after this. You know, and then he just kind of stopped working in films altogether. So it's possible that, in my mind, that it's probably a little bit of both. I could see Todd Browning not being the most present director for all these different scenes and set pieces and having Carl Freund take over. But, you know, I think that the film is clearly, at least in my mind, it benefits from both of them in such a way that it's it's like the best of both of them are present here. And the film really uh, benefits from that. It almost feels like, you know, we hear like Robert Rodriguez directed Dust Till Dawn and Quentin Tarantino wrote it, but I always feel like ultimately like they both 
both did both. You know, like it's a collaborative effort on all ends. You just have to end up splitting credit. Yep. So now we've got Renfield on his way up to Dracula's castle. The people of Hungary are very fearful for him. They try to stop him. They explain their belief in the vampires that live out that way. But to no avail, he, he ends up back on the carriage where he meets up with his transfer at Borgo Pass, where he is picked up by another carriage and taken to Dracula's castle. I thought it was interesting in this moment because in multiple versions of this story, you know, Dracula is there to pick him up, but Dracula is usually in disguise. In this production, Bela Lugosi's full face is visible you know so it makes you wonder how he is not instantly recognized once Renfield gets back to the castle I think it's just a little bit of his hypnotism that he could be uses there what I really like here in the opening is like we get all of this religious symbolism so like in in that town there's that giant cross sort of like right on the outskirts Mm -hmm. and then they give Renfield, the crucifix and everything. And so like they're already right out of the gate. They're like leaning into all the religious iconography and stuff too, which is really cool. So now we've got Renfield at Dracula's castle. This introductory shot for Dracula is maybe one of my favorite moments in the whole film. Renfield is processing where he is. It's this broken down castle full of cobwebs and armadillos. And, you know, it's hard to believe anybody lives there. And as he is sort of walking backwards and surveying the castle, we, the audience, see Bela Lugosi descending this giant staircase. As I said before, we know he's a vampire. So, you know, we're suddenly on edge because Renfield has no idea he's even in the room. As soon as he turns around, we get that sort of shock. Oh, oh, here's Dracula. Yeah, we even get the little earlier the shot of him waking up going to pick up Renfield and it's just like him standing there in the middle of the basement and it's like what is going on it's like he's breaking the fourth wall with the first shot like hypnotizing the audience or something and and then we get to see his his vampire girls he's got like three extra vampire girls kind of hanging out with him and stuff so when Renfield gets to the castle audiences really must have been on edge because they really set up like there's danger at this place like there is really bad shit going on here like this guy is in trouble i think about this particular moment and then when i got to watch the spanish production which had been filmed simultaneously with this film with the same sets but with different cast and crew there's a lot of people who will tell you that the the spanish production is from a technical standpoint superior to todd browning's production i don't share that opinion i think that it is a great film it does things very differently it's not the same film as much as like you know the sets and the story are the same in this This particular scene in the Spanish production, Dracula is a shock to us as well. The camera holds on Renfield a lot longer and then he turns her towards the staircase and then bam, there's Dracula. And like, I get what they were going for there, but I don't think that the shock works quite as well. I prefer the suspense of watching Dracula come down the stairs with Renfield not even being aware of it. I agree with you. I thought the Spanish version was better the last time I watched it. Like, this is really only the second time I've seen it, and there's a lot of merit, and there's a lot of great things going on in there. I think it's an extra 30 minutes somehow. There's some insert shots, I think, that they could have used, they could have borrowed for for the American language version as well. But I think for all of its, like, technical prowess and stuff, I just don't think the acting is there. And I don't think that it's because, like, it's Spanish language. I just, they just did not have the time for, like, second and third takes and things 
like that and stuff. And so I especially don't really like the guy playing Dracula. He just kind of looks a little silly to me. Ultimately, I just think like it's a, again, like a curiosity. Like I know this was a thing at the time was to sort of make a dual language version of a popular film. I mean, we still do it nowadays, right? Like I, it reminds me of sort of the J-horror invasion mm-hmm. of all those uh, American remakes, but but not even Ameri- not even horror movies. Like movies get remade into from from different countries into America like every day. My big thing was they they could have done title cards at the time. I'm surprised they didn't just release Dracula with Spanish subtitles or do things like that. But that's what really shocked me is that the studio would pay all this money to go and shoot an entirely different version in a whole other language instead of just sort of right on the bottom of the screen. Right. I mean, that clearly would have been the most cost effective way to go. In hindsight, I'm glad that this version exists, if only because it created work for these Hispanic actors at a time when like we still kind of struggle with that, with, you know, with representation. But you know, what's crazy, though, is like the quote unquote American version of Dracula. There's not a lot of Americans in this movie. There's Bella Lugosi in here. There's Edward Von Sloan in here. You know, there's Charles K. Gerdard. Like there are all these foreigners in this movie playing their native uh, countrymen pretty much for the most part. So it's just a little strange on that end too. And you know, I think I also texted you, it's like takes place in London where everyone is Spanish. So that's like, why didn't it just take place in Spain? Like there's just a lot of levels. It didn't seem like they really thought it all the way through, but I agree with you. I'd rather have it than not have it. Yeah, it's not, in my opinion, as good a film, but uh, it is a fun thing to watch. I I remember TCM did a uh, double feature presentation in movie theaters, and I got to see both of them back to back. That was a little bit challenging just because of the pace of this film. Like, as much as I love Dracula, to watch it two times back to back can be a little bit of a challenge. Especially since it's a very Gus Van Sant shot for shot type remake. Almost. Yeah, I mean, it's not quite, but it does feel that way because of the sets, you know, with everything being shot in the same locations. You know, it's like, wait, I know this room or, you know, I yeah, definitely worth checking out. Okay, so Renfield is now there to present Dracula with paperwork. All the necessary paperwork has been done for his new lease with Carfax Abbey. I think the Spanish film does establish this more than the American version. Renfield had destroyed all of his correspondence with Dracula as per Dracula's instructions. So no one would miss him if he went missing. So the one thing in this scene that I really love as Renfield is sitting down to eat and he cuts his finger on the the paperclip, that's like the one thing that this film took from Nosferatu. Did you catch that at all? Yeah, I, I like that too. It's like every sequence is introducing a new part of the lore. So like first, you know, last scene we got the crucifixes. What are those for? Where we're about to find out. Like uh, Dracula craves blood. So when he gets a little bit in his sights, he goes for it. But then the crucifix is there. So he can't go any further and stuff. But I was thinking a little deeper about Nosferatu, man. You know, it's too bad that Universal couldn't just swoop in, buy that movie and release it or something like to that degree, because they did end up taking quite a lot of inspiration from it. Yeah, my my assumption at the time is in 1930, I don't know if it was known if all versions of Nosferatu were destroyed or not. My guess would be that they were all under that assumption that they were all gone. So now we can crib from Nosferatu and that was like the one moment, one specific moment they stole, which I thought was a pretty fun, pretty fun bit. I thought the boat sequence as well, like isn't the original, like doesn't he take a plane or something? I'm not sure. Maybe that was more of the play adaptation. 
like I said, I haven't read the book, so I'm not totally sure how Dracula gets to England. Although if I were to take a guess, you know, I'm more familiar with Francis Ford Coppola's film, which is more faithful to the novel. I think he comes by boat. So I think Dracula traveling to England by plane was an invention that came later. And then, I mean, we'll get to it in this film, but it was, it was changed to a boat for this film because of budgetary restrictions. So we have Renfield is taken, falls victim to Dracula and his brides in his stay at Castle Dracula. What I thought was interesting here is that Dracula is only taking three boxes to England with him. And I saw that in the novel and in other versions, he brings like 50 boxes of soil. Yeah, he double downs. Like he, he makes sure. I'm surprised you found that to be interesting and not the whole encounter before he leaves with Renfield once he is under his power. Like, I just want to point out, this is pre-code. Before the Hayes Code in Hollywood, there are undoubtedly gay overtones in this film. I don't think that they are unintentional. Knowing sort of the culture of universal movies and stuff and you know we're gonna get James Whale I don't know if he was out at the time but I'm not sure it was a big secret of his sexuality at the time he directed Frankenstein Bride of Frankenstein and stuff and so like I feel like this is something they were dealing with vice they were dealing with taboo they were dealing with eroticism Dracula calls off his female vampires and keeps Renfield for himself I think they they snuck it in, but I think they knew what they were doing. And I think historians have been picking up on this throughout the years. Yeah, I mean, this story and other vampire stories are are filled with sexual undertones. And I think it does start with this one. And like, I maybe didn't pick up on that between Dracula and Renfield. But as you describe it, I think I agree with you. The scene cuts out really before much happens. And it's really just suggested what goes on. But Renfield will continue through the movie referring to Dracula as his master, you know? And so there's, there's very much like, this what could be seen as like a sexual relationship (laughs) between the two of these guys and you know while Dracula is perceived to be a monster and a creature and yes like homosexuality has been demonized in film history and stuff like I don't think that that was the intent with this because Dracula isn't necessarily coming across as a malicious person this is not a choice for Dracula right like he's just doing what he does right well he's you know he's been alive for hundreds of years I guess at that point you know (laughs) Beggars can't be choosers. Um, (laughs) So now we've got Dracula on his journey to London. As I mentioned, the original concept for this was to have Dracula travel to London in an airplane that had bat wings. You know, almost like Batman. Again, it was cut because of budgetary restrictions. But when I hear that that was the idea, I can't imagine a version of this movie including that and having me take it seriously. It just sounds so silly. What's crazy is like, okay, for the most part, the effects, the look of of this movie are great. But then you get shots of like a bat on a string. I mean, talk about Ed Wood. Granted, Ed Wood did his version of this like 36 years later or something like that. So like he really had no excuse for using paper plates and stuff but you can see the string sometimes and it's just like man you almost took me out of it you're right on the precipice so yeah i don't think i would have accepted the bat wing in this version either right i mean i forgive the goofy bats on strings because there was really no other way to do it at the time i guess i think that was probably a holdover from the stage production they would use a similar technique where they'd have bats on strings and then there'd be a puff of smoke and then dracula would appear you know he would you would never see dracula change i mean how would you do that on stage so they were they relied on that sort of theatricality and that trickery to convey 
the transformation. Now, so I, I get past the cheap looking fake bats, but yeah, the bat plane, I think would have been a bridge too far. So I really, I was glad to see that he was on a boat. Are you aware of what that sequence is from? Like that boat footage is not shot. It was not original to this film. So it's a little obvious that it was borrowed footage from another movie. Most likely, I guess it was in the universal vaults somewhere like that. But yeah, they, they have like this amazing footage of a storm at sea and then they cut the Dracula and it's like not even raining in his shot. Like he's just kind of like looking out the door. They don't really do a great job of matching, but I got to say that footage they use is quite impressive. I would like to see that movie. They borrowed some footage from a 1925 Universal silent film called The Stormbreaker. They also, they sped up the footage. So it looks like a more violent storm when you watch it in the context of Dracula. But I actually quite like that sequence. You're right in that I don't think they really match it up as well as they could. But I do like it. It gives Dwight Fry more opportunities to just chew the scenery. And then we've got Dracula, you know, just kind of surveying the, the crew. And then, of course, we fade to the boat docking and like just silhouettes of bodies hanging over the wheel of the ship and over the railing. Like so much of this novel just was too grotesque and graphically violent to put in this movie, even without the Hayes Code. You know, it was 1931. People hadn't seen graphic violence the way it was described in this book. So they had to find way, creative ways to convey that just by suggesting it, right? And I think that these silhouettes do an excellent job of really uh, conveying the, the horrors that took place on this ship before it reached London. So you know what it reminded me of? Heavy EC horror vibe. Like, um, if you go yeah through those old vault of terror or tales from the crypt stuff like you know they had to they had to hide a lot i mean that was that was before the comics code but even still those artists were incredibly creative and like there'd be like just an amazing silhouette of something or you know or just like the the easiest most simple drawing but like it conveyed so much and so like to use the form of cinema and just tell a few frames in just silhouette like you just see a dead body tied to a steering wheel and you're like oh my god if that is what happened above deck. Like, I don't even want to know what went on below deck. Like, you don't need to show the carnage. It's implied so well. I, I love the contrast of that, too. You know, like, we don't have to see it, but we know what's happening. And then we look at Dracula, who's always very handsome and put together, right? I think that we hear about all of this horrific violence, and then we see the man responsible for it, and he looks so put together and so neat and tidy. I love that. You know, I think if they had gone for a more grotesque version of Dracula, like, that's why one of the things I'm not a huge fan of with Francis Ford Coppola's adaptation. I know it's more faithful, but I love this sharp contrast between the, the violent actions and the man responsible for it and, you know, and how put together he looks. Almost makes it more scary, you know, because if he if he looks scary, then it's easy to believe that he was able to commit all these atrocities, right? So I like that he's just kind of this upstanding uh, gentleman figure. And it's also interesting that maybe just by trait, like a lot of the violence is off screen. So we don't see him necessarily commit a lot of the atrocities either. So that kind of helps disconnect you from him being so violent and everything like that. And then later when he does have his sudden outburst, there super extreme because they're so few and far between like when he's battling with van helsing between the mirror or something you're like oh man like it takes so much to get a reaction out of this guy right basically as soon as dracula gets to london he just starts preying on people right we see him kind of uh seduces this woman oh yeah that that's full-on jack the ripper mode right i was like that's supposed to be a prostitute but they can't say it <laughs> right so she's out there selling flowers for men's lapels you yeah know, she's selling just... flowers everybody you know <laughs> no. <laughs> 
But yeah, so he just doesn't waste any time. He gets right to business and then goes to the theater, which I don't think they specify which theater it is, but I did do a little bit of research into this. They did reuse some of the sets from Phantom of the Opera for these sequences. So what is his plan here? You know, like we know that he bought Carfax Abbey. We know that it's next to a sanitarium and we know that he's going to bump into the doctor at that sanitarium here but there's really no like you know we don't know what he's up to yet so i was wondering if you had any inkling of what his plan might be at this point or if he's just sort of wandering around london looking to get into some like crazy shit yeah they don't really do a great job of explaining it and like i'm okay with it being kind of vague because the only thing i was thinking that we're missing with everything being so condensed and not having uh jonathan go see him is that we lose the whole thread of mina sort of being Dracula's long-lost love reincarnated, right? Like, it kind of gave him a bit more of a motive to move to London was that uh, he knew that this woman, Mina, was there, and if he was there, he could claim her, and they would live forever together as vampires and all that. And that's sort of not here. So it's not like he's here looking for somebody. He's just kind of, you know, checking the place out, like, I'm new in town, like, what's going on? Oh, we're neighbors. Like, maybe he's just getting to know the neighbors. Yeah, so I think that his motivation for leaving Transylvania could be that the people who live in that region of the world are already on to him and have taken steps to, you know, secure their home. You know, like they all know there's a vampire. They have the wolfbane and and they have crucifixes. If you're a vampire and you live in the same place for too long, people around you are going to start to catch on. My guess would be he decided to move to London where there would be far more opportunities to prey on other human beings. But I think it's pure serendipity that when he arrives at the theater, he meets his neighbor. Because Carfax Abbey is directly next door to Seward Sanatorium, which is also where Renfield is now living. You know, of course, when the the schooner arrives in, in London, he's the only one left alive and he's been driven crazy so they throw him into the sanatorium i think it's serendipity that he happens to be living next door to that place this specific adaptation is very intimate and i think that has to do with the stage production you know that the stage show i think is almost entirely told in drawing rooms and bedrooms and and i don't think it spends hardly any time at all in transylvania they try to really strip it down like make it like a a living room drama you know and then this film re-added you know the transylvania sequences and then we have travel by boat and then you have all like the theater i don't know that those scenes exist in the play interesting so it's almost like one of those drawing room mysteries like clue or something like that where everyone's just sitting around talking about crazy shit right. that's going on but i i like it i still i think the the closer the better the more intimate the leaner the meaner because like even with this doctor like mina's father isn't the doctor in the version i'm aware of like it's one of mina's or lucy's lucy has like these three suitors i called them the warriors three <laughs> When we reviewed Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula for Keanu Club, because Keanu's in that movie, there are these three suitors, and one of them's a doctor, one of them's like an American sort of like adventurer, and so forth and so on, and they're all sort of out vying for Lucy's affection and stuff. One of them is a Texan. That's it, yeah. And I like this concept. Like, you're right. Like, it's way more intimate, and I think that it's to the benefit. I think there's something nice. I think with Dracula in particular, the less people that sort of know, like, it's almost like this inside story, like, did you hear 
about what happened like to the sea words and it's like no one really knows because it's like this very quiet untalked about thing that happened once <laughs> i think it's safe to say that this is a, a pretty poor adaptation but i'm not necessarily somebody who thinks that an adaptation needs to be totally faithful to the source material to be a good movie i think this is an example of something where the original material was, was taken stripped down to its absolute necessities condensed and then they tell a story with a lot of the really important stuff and they tell it in a really tight efficient way and i think it's more effective because of how intimate it is because we become so familiar with all of these characters it's not like other versions where you have again all these other characters these all these other suitors and yeah. um, it becomes a bigger movie and dracula can get lost in a cast of that size unless you unless you make up you know you have to be conscious of that and, and and make sure you push him to the forefront but in this there's only what six major characters including draculas so yeah i really love this this particular production pushes him into the forefront makes him the main character we get renfield as like a supporting character for him the downside to this i think is that mina and john harker are less interesting than they are in other versions of the story john jonathan harker should be the primary protagonist but in this version he's just kind of the fiance of the victimized woman and he doesn't really get a whole lot to do he kind of puts all of his faith in van helsing i'm okay with that because i think that the strength of this film is in lugosi and in edward van sloan i think those are the two that really and and of course dwight fry on the side but i think that this movie is very much a competition between lugosi and van sloan like they, they knew that that's what they were doing when they were making this by making it so intimate by having just really just a few locations if it's not the sewer drawing room or mina's bedroom or you know carfax abbey like there's not many other locations in this or primary locations in this film and right here at the opera like we're gonna meet every character we're gonna have except for van helsing who's gonna come like maybe two scenes later so it's like incredibly efficient too in its storytelling again it's only like an hour and 15 minutes at that and also like you said earlier like it doesn't kind of waste any moments and stuff like everybody is saying everything they need to and not like a syllable more or less exactly yeah i think that works well and i agree you know i'm fine with john playing the background a little bit because i think it's more mina's story like and i think in general junior lemley might have been onto something when it seems like the horror genre so far is predicated on the horrors of being a woman in modern society right like you look at stuff like the phantom and you look at stuff like this and it's like it's scary as fuck to be a woman <laughs> yep. you know like today too like just through history and and i think that a lot of that is going on here so i'm fine also with this being sort of mina being sort of the third lead here or fourth i mean okay you got dracula okay and you got renfield like those yes they're like the two main leads but then, like, the hero is Van Helsing, and then Mina is, like, next in life, right? Like, she's more than even a damsel, because she has so much urgency later. The, the way that she speaks about her the character the way the character changes so drastically and so obviously and and all this and so convincingly like that character goes on a fucking journey man <laughs> like in not a very long amount of time either complete personality shift back and forth and meanwhile john harker is who he is through like from the beginning to the end so not a lot of character development with that guy right yeah like i said maybe the least interesting version of jonathan harker is this john harker but i don't mind it because of how strong the performance performances are from Lugosi, Van Sloan, and, and Dwight Fry, and, and, and Mina as well. Okay, so as Dracula arrives at a London theater, he meets Dr. Seward, along with his daughter Mina, her fiancé John Harker, and Mina's friend Lucy Weston. They sort of establish their relationship.
relationship in that scene. Dracula uh, announces that he has taken residence in Carfax Abbey, and everyone's very excited that somebody will finally be living in that place again. Shortly after that, Dracula preys on Lucy Weston. Before that, I just remembered, we get the first time anyone has ever done a Bela Lugosi Dracula impression. Amazing. And like, that's taking advantage of the sound medium. Yeah. On top of the accents and stuff, but like someone doing an impression of someone must have blown your mind back then watching that like i couldn't imagine that that was great Uh, yeah i love it because growing up vampires were always sort of in my periphery they always talked the same way it's like i want to suck your blood you know it's always that bella lugosi accent so it like it cracks me up when i when i see mina doing a lugosi impression i just i love that moment that might be uh, neither here nor there for some people but i think it's a fun moment that is incredible snark that i did not know existed back in the 30s you know like that is truly like taking the piss out of somebody on a level that I did not know they were aware of back then (laughs) like it just comes across as like so weird and meta or something like so referential you know of a thing to make fun of it just seems so so weird to me in my mind that that would have happened back then but that's so great yeah after Lucy has her encounter with Dracula, she is pronounced dead the next day after a series of uh, blood transfusions. The doctors notice, uh, I think Seward is on the case there. He notices the two small marks on her neck and, and mentioned there have been other women or other people recently who have been found dead with these same two marks on their neck. So suddenly we have a, you know, a clue of what's going on here. And it's also mentioned but never shown. So maybe that's the one thing they could have expanded on. But again, it's so grotesque i don't know if they how they could have gotten away with it but to have shown the vampire bride lucy uh and maybe um another one or two of her victims because they speak about this woman roaming around at night like looks all ghastly and everything like that but we never get to see her unfortunately we see her once later on Oh, okay. That was her. I wasn't sure if that was a new vampire woman or not. <laughs> yeah. So later in the film, like there are newspaper reports that a woman in white is luring children from uh, a nearby park and assaulting them. You know, of course, Mina realizes it's Lucy who's been uh, risen as a vampire. So yeah, Lucy's journey is not over, but she is effectively dead after her first encounter with Dracula. And then we cut back to Renfield, who's living in Seward Sanatorium. He is obsessed with eating insects, flies, spiders, all for their blood and life essence. Professor Van Helsing receives a sample of his blood, analyzes it, and suddenly starts to think that the problem that they have is a vampire. As we established, he's yes, he's a professor, he's a man of science, but also a skeptic. He's willing to believe in the existence of vampires, despite the fact that everybody else in his immediate orbit thinks it's silly and, and nonsensical. I really love this sort of aspect of horror that we didn't really get this so much with Phantom because Phantom wasn't supernatural, right? So like mm-hmm. the whole concept of like there's a secret part of reality that nobody believes in but actually exists or something something to that level. Like Van Helsing is in on something that we are not because he he has the power to believe it's true. So like in a way it manifests for him or something. I'm just so deeply fascinated with this on so many levels of like how it opens up this concept of a secret history of the world you know like uh, almost like everybody walks around in the matrix
Matrix, right? But like Van Helsing, he he's already taken the right pill. Like he can see beyond the world into like the horrors that are really there. It's almost like even you know touches on what Lovecraft would become like known for too, right? Like these people who are privy to the horrors that are unspeakable, but yet like if you ignore them, you will sort of fall prey to them. So it's best to like study them so you can vanquish them if you need to. Uh, I, I just love Van Helsing so much. <laughs> yeah, as Dracula says later in the film, for a man who's not lived even a single lifetime, you are a wise man, Van Helsing. So yeah, he is definitely wise beyond his years. And he's pretty old. Like, he's up there in age. He looks like he's at least in his 70s, right? <laughs> right. It, it, it makes me wonder what else he has seen in his career because we get the sense that he knows a lot about vampires, but I'm not so sure, based on this representation of him, if he has ever encountered one before. Other versions of Van Helsing portray him as this, like, vampire slayer. Of course, the Hugh Jackman movie definitely portrays him that way. Like, that's all he does, is he runs around the world killing vampires. But in this, it seems very much like he's a man who has read about this somewhere, and had to go back to his his, his library and get the books and figure out what he had to do to deal with a vampire. Like, I feel like this is the first vampire he's ever had to deal with. He almost reminds me of Gandalf, right? Where, like, he's heard of the ring, but he had to go, like, research it and make sure it was the right ring and all that before he could, like, really face it, like, head on. Or even, like, the Ghostbusters, where it's like, they knew what they, they studied this for years, but when they are actually confronted with this, like, do they have the wherewithal to solve this kind of problem, actually? Like, do they have the metal to stand up to the supernatural? I mean, obviously the Ghostbusters, you know, is a comedy and stuff, but I think it's the same idea of mortal dealing with the supernatural, right? And, like, you're outmatched from the beginning, no matter what, so to face that, I just consider him, like, incredibly brave to begin with without even knowing the guy, <laughs> just from that end. Oh, for sure. He doesn't skip a beat. There's one moment in this in this film, which we'll get to, where I think Van Helsing realizes just what he's up against, but the fact that he's able to resist it all tells us something about his incredible strength. He's almost supernatural in his own right. Like, he is the best of us, right? Like, he has the most sort of, like, concentration. Or He's up there with, like, Sherlock Holmes, as far as, like, the mind of an intellect and, and, and the powers of that that of sway and persuasion that those bring. As he says at one point that, you know, the vampire's power is is in that people will not believe in him, right? And Van Helsing is the only person in this movie who's like, yeah, I believe in you, dude. Just based on that, a lot of Dracula's power is diminished because Van Helsing believes in him. Just, just based on that. Dude, it's Kaiser Sose, man. I mean, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was getting people to believe he never existed at all, right? Isn't that... Exactly right. <laughs> yep, yep. That's exactly right. Which is funny that you mentioned that because this movie is so filled with religious imagery as well. I had forgotten about that. There's so much to mine in this movie, dude. Not everything is here. I'm surprised like the garlic isn't here. They have the wolfsbane, but but holy water has not shown up yet. Correct. The stake through the heart, it's more of like a necessity. Like they break apart his coffin to find something sharp to kill him with. Like it's not like they need a stake made of wood. So it's kind of cool how much is fully formed, but yet how much more they add to it that feels natural. Right, and that happens again in other films in the original Wolfman. They don't really establish all of the lore of werewolf mythology. So, like, it's funny how these things, you know, in their original form, we, we recognize a couple things, but like, oh yeah, where's the holy water? Where's this? Where's that? Oh, those would come later. So yeah, I think we'll have a good time watching, you know, other vampires evolve over the course of this journey. We hear them say he can turn into mist, 
wolves, bats, and stuff, but we only really see him transform into a bat. Not even transform, but we only really get him as a bat. I mean, there's so much fog in London, it's hard to tell where Dracula starts and he, and he ends, so I don't know. He could be some of that fog as well. But it's cool, like, they do mention, you know, he's got multiple forms, and, and that's cool. He turns into a wolf at one point, but we don't see it, of course. Oh, he does, okay. He's in that drawing room, and then he sort of leaves through the balcony, and then they see a wolf running off into the distance, and Van Helsing straight up says, oh yeah, he can take many forms. So Van Helsing's awesome. Just by analyzing Renfield's blood, understands that uh, what he's dealing with is is a Nosferatu. He even uses the word Nosferatu. It's like they're cutting promos, like, and they're saying, look, now we can call our shit Nosferatu, but you couldn't. <laughs> it's like they're rubbing it in his face or something. I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure Nosferatu is, is a term that is used in the book. Yes, but I, I also feel like it was a meta reference. <laughs> Possible. Because they could have just said vampire or vampire or, you know, they could have. Sure. Van Helsing eventually travels to London, meets with Dr. Seward, analyzes Renfield, like, straight up in person. We get a fun interaction with him, and Renfield, of course, recoils at the wolf's bane that Van Helsing had in his pocket, which, another clue, you know, the fact that Renfield was so put off by the wolf's bane tells him that he's on the right track. And that Renfield, Renfield's like, crazier than anyone he's ever seen too right like he mentioned something about that i th- feel like at one point renfield is like oh yeah but doesn't he say like i i'm like a totally normal perfectly respectable person and then he like flips on the dime and he goes yes. crazy <laughs> van helsing's like oh this guy i've never seen anyone this crazy <laughs> like, his performance is great because of the way dwight fry kind of like takes us on that roller coaster there are moments where renfield seems totally lucid even if he is totally tortured by what's going on. And then there are moments where he's just raving, right? Raving mad. He has these incredible, like, peaks and valleys throughout the film. Like, once once he's Dracula's slave, you know, it's like he's fighting that influence, right? So we, we get to see a little bit of it as he goes back and forth. Nowadays, I would look at that and be like, he's manic-depressive, right? And he's in a... Sure. He's in a hospital for that, right? And so I'm curious to know if that was on Bram Stoker's mind at all. I don't know if mental health held what the what the shape of it was in the 1800s back then. But Yeah, it, it certainly would have been viewed as mental illness. I have to believe that. People who have bipolar disorder today behave in a similar way, you know, if they're unmedicated and whatnot. But so yeah, I have to imagine that his behavior wouldn't have been all that out of the ordinary. It's just that the obsession with consuming living things would have been different about that. But his temperament in his mood swings surely would have been something they would have seen and had experience with. But of course, all these clues are are leading to a vampire, at least according to Van Helsing. So then we have Dracula. He visits, finally visits Mina in her bedroom, and he bites her. Of course, we never see any him bite anybody in this film. It just he he's leaning in, and it fades to the next scene. And then we have a scene in that drawing room with Van Helsing, John Harker, and and Seward, where they're, they're talking about Mina, Van Helsing. And examines her neck they finally discover she's got bite marks on her neck we learn that mina is having very vivid horrifying dreams which are of course a product of dracula's influence as van helsing is sort of questioning and 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 trying to diagnose mina dracula shows up in maybe what is the my favorite cut in the whole film dude not just in this film but that is a cut for film history like that is legendary like that is 
been taken so many times since Dracula, and I can't think that this was done beforehand. So as they're discussing the bites on Mina's neck, John Harker asks out loud what could have caused them, and then off screen we hear the maid of the house announce Count Dracula. I've seen this film in a theater, and that got, like, the best reaction in the whole film. That is cutting edge. That has to be, because there hasn't been a lot of sound movies at the time, right? So he's probably, so, like, this, I don't know if this was a Todd Browning thing or what, but, like, he's definitely thinking on another dimension here, right? Where he's like, what's an audio transition now? You know, instead of a fade, like, let's use you know, words or something like that's how it comes across to me. Right. It's like they're breaking through to another dimension of like filmmaking. Like I've seen a transition like this done with a smash cut, you know, visually, you know, maybe somebody has their throat slit and then it, it gets cut to somebody squeezing ketchup onto a cheeseburger, you know, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like vi visually, I'm sure this has been done before, but I love how this works, how this plays out as an audio transition, right? I like, I, I love that so much. That's in everyone's bag of tricks. Like you're, you, you find that I bet like you go and look at the MCU movies. I bet this gag turns up who could have done this. It's Mysterio. Look, he's here. Like, you know. <laughs> I need to highlight that because that's maybe my favorite moment in the whole thing. Definitely one of my favorite moments in this whole film. Yeah, like in a movie with a lot of highlights and standout moments, like that absolutely is way up there. Dracula is now in the presence of the same folks he just met at the theater uh, maybe the night before. Yeah, they're neighbors now. So, you know, they're going to like hang out, maybe play some cards or something, <laughs> right. whatever you do. But except now Van Helsing is there and our two rivals meet each other face to face. And now we, the audience, know that Dracula is now meeting for the first time the man who is on to him, right? I think that's such a great introduction to like, or a great meeting for these two characters. It, it, like, it just plays out so well. It's epic. Like, this is how you want mortal enemies to face off. This is like Clark Kent meeting Lex Luthor, but like from like, this has been Lex Luthor's movie the whole time, you know? And like, he but walks it, into a room and there's Superman and he's like, ah, uh, shit. Like, yeah, I've heard of you. I know you. You've got a reputation. It precedes you. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Except what I like about that, like, I, I don't get that Dracula is really all that phased by it, you know? Like, he's certainly aware, like, oh, yeah, we even in the far reaches of Transylvania, we know of you, Dr. Helsing. You know, like, so he knows who Van Helsing is, but I didn't read from Bela Lugosi's performance that he was at all concerned, at least not yet. Yeah, he's way too, like, calm, cool, and collect. Like, it's going to take a lot. He's going to need proof that Van Helsing is dangerous. Up until now, it's just all reputation. And Dracula has a way worse reputation. So, like, he's not afraid of them as much as they seem to be afraid of him at this point. But the tables are going to turn during this scene, which is great. Yes, and even when they do, in subsequent scenes, because there's another really great scene with, with just Dracula and, and Van Helsing, the two of them never seem to lose respect for each other. It's almost like game recognizes game, right? They're both aware of who each other are and like they're both game for this challenge, right? Like it's gonna be you or me and we're gonna be gentlemen about it, right? And that's what I love so much. It's almost more like how you wish like Batman versus Superman would have been like if, if Clark and Bruce just sat down and had like a my dinner with Andre type of <laughs> argument. <laughs> like, yeah. But, like, how much better is it? Like, this, this scene when Dracula tries to hypnotize Van Helsing and Van Helsing's willpower is just too much to crack, they don't 
really say a word. It's all in look. It's all in body language. And it's wonderful. And until then, they just have like these like one up arguments. Like they just keep saying shit. Like, like I know, like in the, in the vein of like, I know who you are, but I just don't care. Like there's nothing you can do. Like even when Dracula is sort of called out, it doesn't stop him. He's like, you're still immortal. Like you might know one or two ways to get around me. But I'm still fucking Dracula, dude. Like, I'm, right, I'm right, right. five times your age. Like, there's no way you're going to stop me. Yeah, it's like watching a really great chess match. Like, watching these two on screen together, I think. There are no big set pieces. Like, in other adaptations of this, even in the novel, there's, like, a whole chase scene, you know, when, when the jig is up. You know, Dracula flees back to Transylvania. And it's, like, this whole globe-trotting chase. That All that got cut out of this particular adaptation. I think that it works so well. You know, like, I think that was a, a brilliant move for this particular adaptation because of how intimate everything is I think that would have seemed out of place I think the strength again like I said before the strength of this movie is those two acting off of each other and because they had so much experience doing it on stage it's like watching fireworks on screen and it's like these two old dudes character wise like oh, Bela yeah, Lugosi's yeah, yeah. not an old man but I'm just saying like in the movie you know it's like it's like if Darth Vader and Obi-Wan it never unleashed their lightsabers but like instead just kind of yelled at each other or insulted each other but like it's along those lines like I just like the whole concept too is that danger isn't resigned for the youthful right like this these guys are aged because and that makes them wise and that makes them dangerous. So in this scene where Dracula appears and, and he meets Van Helsing for the first time, he's maintaining his gaze on Mina and his influence on her now that she's kind of, I guess, like a, a half vampire at this point. Van Helsing notices in this scene that Dracula has no reflection. This is the third piece of evidence suggesting that Dracula is a member of the living dead. We have that great moment where Van Helsing tricks Dracula, asks him for some help. You know, I've seen something that I can't quite understand. Can you take a look at this? And he opens the cigarette box that has a mirror on the inside of the lid. Of course, Dracula knows exactly what's going on, swats the cigarette case onto the floor, composes himself, but not before giving him like the greatest, most subtle death stare I've ever seen in my life. It's surprise. And then it slowly works into like that squint, like, that glare yeah it's sort of like you got me this time because i was caught off guard but never again like i'll give you this one <laughs> right it's too bad dracula because he knows a lot more than you think he knows about how to like take care of you and vampires and everything like that but but i love how pivotal cigarettes are to this story you know like cigarettes all but banned from movies in 2020 i've been had a cigarette in almost a decade but like i smoked for a long time they're terrible for you also the whole concept that Dracula may be perceived as one of the most vain monsters and one of the most good-looking monsters, can't look in the mirror, can never, like, the reflection is his enemy. There's something so sort of tragic about that, in a way. Like, I don't want to feel sorry for him so much. Like, as this goes on, I'm less and less on Dracula's side. But when it starts, like, you don't really know much about the guy, and he does suffer to a degree, you know what I'm saying? Like, he even talks about how sweet a true death would be, like, what a release that would be, you know, one day a relief, you know, to die for good and, and all that so there is some empathy for this guy along the way not being able to enjoy his vanity is kind of like an interesting thing oh 100 yeah but you know you get the sense that somehow Lugosi crams all of those centuries of that inner turmoil into this like hour and 17 minute film which is incredibly impressive and that outburst too like you know yes. he went around and smashed mirrors like everywhere for days when he yes <laughs> and so like that moment in the play the way that they had conceived 
conceived it for the stage show, it would have been a mirror on a wall. And like Van Helsing would have been looking in the mirror on the wall and noticed and Dracula would have shattered the mirror. Even in Edward Van Sloan's screen test, that's the scene that they use and they shatter the mirror. And I think it's a, it's a great moment, but th it was impractical because every performance they'd have to replace that mirror. They still use the mirror, but they had to rewrite it so that Dracula did not get the chance to destroy that mirror, which I thought was interesting. I like that the cigarette box with the mirrored lid, it's just a fun, interesting prop, something that I've never seen before. So I like that nice touch and that they kept that. Yeah, to be quite honest, I didn't even notice that there wasn't a mirror hanging in these people's home anywhere. Like, there's no other mirror in the entire movie, and yet it never really was brought to my attention. Even when this little cigarette mirror comes out, it, it's so impactful because it's like the only reflection in the whole movie, and you don't even realize it until then and throughout the rest of the movie. But also from a from like a shooting standpoint, you can't shoot a movie with like mirrors hanging everywhere. You're going to catch that reflection all over the place, especially as much as this camera's moving. Yeah. I suspect you're probably right about that. You know, that we don't see, we, this is the only mirror I think we see in the whole movie. It's probably, yeah, because they couldn't digitally erase the camera. And also, I feel like if there were other mirrors in the film, it would have impacted the significance of this one scene. I think it's by design that we, like, for, for multiple reasons why this is like the one mirror we really get to see. This is like the action sequence, basically, right? Like it's it's like the one big explosion is when Dracula like smashes that cigarette holder down to the ground and jumps back, and everyone looks around like, "Oh my god!" Like like thunder just struck in the room or something. And it's even more so in the Spanish production. Like yeah, right. Yeah, in the Spanish production, Dracula as soon as he um, realizes what's happening, he has this kind of extended shock and outrage. It's a very big long scene and then he takes his cane and shatters the shit out of that box and it is so comical how over the top it is i remember like in that screening i got to see everybody in the theater laughed because it was just so over the top but i love i love lugosi immediately like as soon as that lid comes up he swats it to the ground like he knows yeah i think that's another testament to lugosi's portrayal you know the, the, this dracula he's been around he's been around for centuries he fell for it this one time but it didn't take him like forever to react to be like oh no a mirror exactly and he's gonna come back at van helsing like he's not just gonna let this go right like he's gonna yeah. double down he's gonna try and like hypnotize him to kill him and he's gonna still go after mina and you know he's just kind of doubled down at this point he's like the game is now afoot for real now <laughs> For sure. And we've got Renfield. Oh, man, he's still struggling. He wants to do the right thing. He knows that he's probably going to be damned to hell for eternity. Well, he's getting passed over. He's getting dumped for Mina, right? Like, he, and he's being gaslit. Like, he's going to Dracula. He's like, I'll do anything. And Dracula's like, get away, get away. Like, go eat some bugs. There's that, but there's all the, also these moments where he's trying to resist. Like, he knows what Dracula's plan is and even tries to save Mina. At one point, he tells John Harker, like, take her. Or was it John Harker? or Dr. Seward, he tells somebody, get her away from here. Not realizing that Dracula might be watching, tries to save her, even if he can't save himself. Like, it's this one little moment where he has his full faculties back, and then he descends back into madness, explains, you know, Dracula promised him millions of rats if he would just do as he commanded. 
That, to me, is maybe Dwight Fry's greatest scene. Dwight Fry, I didn't get a chance to say this earlier, was a very accomplished stage performer. He had a very broad range. He had done musicals, he had done comedy, he had done straight drama, and it wasn't until Dracula that, like, his film career made him pretty much synonymous with, like, crazy, grotesque, lunatic-type sidekick characters. This one role, as, as crazy as that sounds, kind of derailed his whole career. He got typecast in these types of roles for the rest of his life. But like, in this one scene, he's channeling Shakespeare at one point. He's talking biblical stuff. When Seward and Van Helsing are talking about seriously having a conversation about vampires, and then Renfield shows up and he's like, isn't this a strange conversation for two people to be having who aren't crazy? They point out to him, like, how crazy he is, and he's like, words, 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 which is, that's straight out of Hamlet. And then he gives this whole monologue about the rats. To me, it was very reminiscent of that biblical moment where Jesus is tempted by Satan. You know, if you do what I tell you to do, I will give you all the riches in the world. In this case, Renfield is being promised rats to eat, which is so fucked up. It's crazy, too, because there's a lot of sort of christ-like attributes to dracula you know like um the whole communion for crying out loud right, like drinking right. blood and eating flesh like that's what dracula does the way that people worship him after you're in his presence and the way that he can just has this power over people and thinks outside the box or whatever is just from a, a faraway land of a different culture and you know people just kind of see this as they did with jesus as a threat to the way of life the way that things have been fine for all these years and here comes this person that represents the future and everything's different already overnight. Like I can't handle that. And it's like, well, you know, you better try to handle that. Like you better get in yeah. step with the rest of the world. Yes. Okay. So we got Renfield chewing scenery and, and, and swinging for the fences in that, that scene with Dr. Seward and Van Helsing. Of course, now we get to the, the, maybe one of the greatest scenes in this film where Dracula and Van Helsing really come to know one another and basically lay out what they're going to do. Dracula Dracula is going to have Mina no matter what. His blood already courses through her veins and suggests Van Helsing should return to his home country, whereas Van Helsing is determined to stay and protect those around him from Dracula's reign of terror. And then there's the moment where Van Helsing resists Dracula's, you know, th that hypnotizing effect. And that's what I was referring to before. I think that that's such a great moment from Edward Van Sloan. Like, we get the sense that, yes, he resists, but it took everything he had. It's such a great little subtle moment. So then we get Van Helsing revealing his crucifix, which causes Dracula to retreat. Now, really, the game is on, right? Like, they, they know one another, they know what their plans are, and now it's a matter of succeeding on both parts. Yeah, he's already, like, seeded Mina. So, like, she's working her magic on John and is like, you gotta get the wolfsbane and the cross away from Van Helsing. Like, he's yep. trying to turn you against me and all this stuff. And it's like, oh my god, that's so awesome. But Van Helsing over hears all this shit so like you know it was a good idea it was a nice try they didn't account for the strength of van helsing's will exactly after mina tries to seduce and potentially bite john harker van helsing is full-on we're going for this guy so renfield escapes the sanatorium and heads for carfax abbey van helsing and john harker follow him so dracula with mina in his arms is racing to his crypts to get them into native soil before the sun comes up and then renfield Renfield accidentally leads Van Helsing and John Harker to Carfax Abbey. Of course, that's where everything goes down. Dracula, realizing Renfield has given him up, kills Renfield for all of his trouble, and 
then races down into the crypts with Mina in his arms. We get a nice little stairfall stunt. I yes! Noticed. I'm keeping track of the stunts. We had the carriage last time where the two people jumped off of the moving carriage in Phantom, and now we got this guy falling down the stairs. Yeah, so this is a moment where I think that the Spanish production and the English production both do this moment pretty well. Now, the Spanish actor playing Dracula, he's over performing of course but the the stunt involved is is a little bit different we see dwight fry sort of tumble down the stairs before falling off the side but in the spanish production dracula chokes out renfield and then sort of tosses him off the ledge and and he falls maybe like a story about 10 feet or so into the ground i think that both are very effective stunts i'm not sure that i have a favorite but i do think that that's a moment that both films did differently but equally effective there's a really impressive scope here carfax abbey very much mirrors castle dracula in it's like decrepit nature and form and all that kind of thing and so right. with the assistance of some like glass set extensions and really interesting practicals like that staircase looked incredibly dangerous and steep and and the stunt is sold perfectly i think it works both ways i like it very much but uh yeah it, it just plays so well really cool to have like that as well here at the end i don't know that i have a favorite i think they both work equally well but I, yeah i think as far as early stunt work goes i think both are great so i i just have a quick question about carfax abbey itself because yeah. to be quite honest with you it wasn't until downton abbey that i even knew what the hell an abbey was when referring to this type of building yeah and all that kind of stuff so is that what we're talking about here like it was one something like that like a, a property that a lord and his family sort of lived on but then fell into destitute and now was like up for grabs and stuff and and so that why it has like this incredibly sort of gothic hallway and staircase and then in the basement like i don't even know what's going on underground like what is all that like the crypt and everything like is this common for an abbey do you know anything about this kind of stuff I don't. I didn't actually think to, to do any research there, unfortunately, but that would be my assumption. I mean, I think that Dracula chose that particular building for its similarities to his Transylvanian castle. I mean, he, again, he mentions that earlier in the film. I think that for him, the choice could have been just that it was what he was used to. Although it makes me wonder about, you know, it's, it's in London, which would have been a much more developed place than Transylvania at the time. Why would he choose to live in a building as conspicuous as Carfax Abbey? You know, like, people know that building because it's old and decrepit. I feel like he's got to have an ulterior motive we're not privy to. Like, I also feel like he's got an apartment uptown where he keeps his change of clothes and, and like, his toiletries. <laughs> well, yeah, in, in other versions of Dracula, he, he only brought three coffins or three boxes of soil with him in this film but in other versions and in in the 1992 coppola film you know he purchases multiple properties in london with the idea that you know wherever he happens to be he will have a place to go where he can sleep safely i think that's an unusual choice for this particular film but i think it's in keeping with the the more intimate nature of this adaptation he only has the one place to go and i think that you know if he had multiple places he could go it would have lengthened the film and i kind of like that 
that it's as tight and and efficient as it is it doesn't make the most sense if we want to super like hyper analyze it but um it's a film you know and, and i think that it tells this particular story as efficiently as it can i don't question it too much and i don't really hold it against the film yeah in all the other versions to my understanding he doesn't ever use his other squatting pads or he never goes to the mattresses anywhere else right, right. He, he only chills at carfax abbey anyway so and you can make the argument that he's cocky enough that he doesn't think he needs another place to go he is not fast enough and uh, van helsing and john harker race to the the crypts beneath carfax abbey i love this moment they find the the boxes of soil dracula is asleep in his and Mina is nowhere to be found. And the, and, and the film keeps this information from us. It does, they don't tell us that she is safe or alive or whatever. We just, all we know is that her box is empty. Van Helsing immediately gets to work looking for something like a stake or, you know, some just something to, to hammer into Dracula's chest. And as he does that, then we cut to Mina who is alive somewhere in the crypt and Dracula, we hear groaning his like death moans in the background, which I didn't realize until recently when this film was originally released, that sound of Dracula like was cut from the production because it was too violent for the audiences at the time, which seems so silly to me. Like how, how do you confirm that Dracula is dead? It has since been restored, but I'm thinking about it now. You know, I think about all of the sequels to Dracula. There's Dracula's daughter and son of Dracula. And then Dracula shows up in, in uh, House of Dracula, House of Frankenstein, and other films in this series, which we'll get to, without the sound effect of Dracula dying, there's no confirmation that he's dead. So I have to imagine, like, in the 30s and the 40s, it was more plausible that Dracula could still be alive. As I watch these today in 2020, there's definitive proof that a stake has been hammered into his chest, he has been affected by it, and then now we've got more Dracula movies, you know? So it, it makes less sense now, but I'm glad to have the film restored to its original well mostly original state because the golden rule is if you don't see him die on screen if he dies off screen or, or at least the rule in the star wars universe is if he dies off screen he's not really dead you know like right, right, you right. gotta see the body kind of situation but since since mina reverts back to normal you could pretty much conclude the only way that's possible is if dracula is is dead the one thing i would have loved to have seen is maybe like a dissolve effect you know like just see bella lugosi laying there and then just have it fade to nothing and like yeah. have his little cape fall or something originally also like i found this ending to be incredibly awkward the idea that they run down there and they open the box and there he is like he completely can't defend himself um he's fucked yeah, I have to think that as he was racing to the basement, there was a part of him that knew it was done. But he had to get back into that box before the sun came up. Those are the rules of vampires. Like, he had to do it or he would die anyway. Yeah, there's something There's something more... I can't really put my finger on it, but the, the idea that he didn't stop and try and, like, take care of these two guys and kill them before he gets back into his thing, like, leads me to believe that, like, he's not totally in control of his actions entirely, right? Like, he's being... He himself is, like, a puppet, right? He's being forced in a lot of ways to act on these compulsions that he has no control over, you know? It's almost like um, like a mental state that he can't get out of or something like he's... Tra he doesn't necessarily want to kidnap this woman but he can't help himself or something i don't know what it is kind of like how renfield is not in total control of his mental faculties well yeah pretty much yeah he is also suffering and so i i kind of agree with that like maybe originally i felt this ending was a little clunky and awkward but now when i watch it i kind of 
revere it like i kind of love it like it's so unusual and this would never play today like this like they would never conclude a movie between a monster and you know his pursuers without a giant fight and there's no fight exactly there's none of that it's just that's the end like there's something so natural about they didn't fight the course of the story along the way they just let it play out right and and like i said i think in in the in the novel there's a whole chase back to transylvania because of budgetary uh reasons they, they were not able to, to do that here. Yes, it plays out very conveniently. There's no big fight. And I think as a person watching it in 2020, I kind of appreciate it for that reason because I would expect a giant fight and we don't get that. At the same time, I would understand people who, who see it as sort of a cop-out or sort of a anticlimactic ending. But also, you know, I'm, I'm watching this film as an adaptation of a play. So I'm also, I have that floating around in my mind. Like, how would, how would this play out in a play? Yeah, I've never really had an issue with the ending, although I understand why people would criticize it. I think it, it is a little bit neat and, and you expect a big like especially with again with those scenes between dracula and and van helsing earlier in the film you expect like a a huge climax between these two and what we get is is not quite that if i were to change anything about this film it would probably be to have a little more pushback from dracula at the end but i don't have a problem with the ending the way it exists I like it this way. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think our, our brains are sort of conditioned by just modern storytelling and filmmaking and stuff. So it's like where, you know, our, our mind kind of goes, where's the fight? Like, why aren't they racing to get out of the Abbey as it's crumbling around them kind of situation, you know? And, and I think this movie just proves along the way the entire time it uses what's absolutely necessary to tell the story there's no fat here there's it's all lean and mean and you know and that even goes to the end it's like we're just gonna bounce right at the end like boom he's dead we're out like it's over you know and there's not gonna be big and dramatic and i also feel like by this point the audience members at the time must have been exhausted whoever's left whoever (laughs) hasn't run out of the fucking theater screaming their head off right i feel like they're exhausted like it's enough to see the shock of dracula in his car often. I had read somewhere that uh, as a promotional stunt for the film, there were people who were sort of planted into the audience to faint and like have like these little like episodes so that the rest of the crowd would be like, oh, wow, like what is happening? You know, and of course that would build publicity. People would like word of mouth would spread and like, oh, people are fainting at Dracula. Yeah, of course, this isn't very scary by by modern standards, but uh, by all accounts, you know, everything that I've read, A, this movie was a huge success in 1931 and also was terrible terrifying. People went to see Dracula, were horrified by it, but also the the sexual undertones definitely played for mass audiences. You mentioned Ed Wood earlier, and one of my favorite bits in that is when Bela Lugosi is telling Ed Wood, you know, if you want to make out with a pretty lady, take her to see Dracula. And like, (laughs) I I think there's something to that. There's a romanticism in Dracula, despite the fact that he's this horrible monster, that women were drawn to to Dracula. And so, yeah, I think in in the 30s, this film just like kind of checked every box for people who wanted to be afraid, but also kind of like aroused in a weird way. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of that still plays today. I don't think the horror really plays as well. You know, like where horror technique has evolved so much and it takes so much more to scare us now because we live in in like a post 9-11 world. And even even prior to that, the real world was much more scary than this. Yeah. Well, I mean, but even now in our age of elevated horror, right? Like look what sure. you have to do to get the Invisible Man to, to be passable, right? Like, look, mm-hmm. they, I mean, that is now along the lines of elevated horror, what they, had, what they did with that 
So for Dracula, like it's always been very sexually charged, but I feel like even though they were warning us back then about the warnings of, of being sexually free, a lot of Dracula can sort of be related as like a sexual disease. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like that is not really played with then, but that's all Dracula became. Like he definitely became like a parable for the AIDS virus in the in the 80s. They tagged it onto this monster. 100%. It hits so many different levels and like that is a that's always going to be a fear in society, you know? So like they're all so Dracula is born from the from the fears of the modern age of society, maybe from the late 1800s, the early 1900s, but like we're still experiencing those same things today and that's why he's like maybe more relevant than ever. I realized as I was rewatching it today and examining it with a, a more critical eye for this podcast, I, I realized just how much or how relevant it still is. Dracula can be a metaphor for a lot of things. Of course, at the time, as I said, Dracula was a metaphor for uh, for the Depression. He was a metaphor immigrants coming into England. Later decades, he's become a, a metaphor for sexually transmitted diseases. Like, like there's never going to be a time, I don't think, where Dracula can't be a, a potent metaphor for something. That's why this particular character has persevered for as long as he has. Now, he, he has taken many forms since then, but I think if you were to to have people describe Dracula, you still get kind of the, the Bela Lugosi portrayal, which is, I think, a testament to Bela Lugosi, hands down. Oh, yeah. Like, this has become the iconic look. Everything else, even in my own experience, is compared to the Lugosi Dracula. You know, yeah, I, I remember when Bram Stoker's Dracula came out in 92. They're like, what the hell is this shit? Like, that's not Dracula. Like, who's this old fuck? Like, this is right. with, the, with, his, with his butt hair. Now, I kind of like that uh, for what it is now and everything, but I was right there with the pitchforks and the torches. I was like, that's not Dracula. Like, that's some ugly ass old dude. Where's the suave, sexy guy? And yes, he sort of turns into like, he, he becomes like Axl Rose halfway through that movie. <laughs> <laughs> but like, even then, then he had he did not look like Bella. He had long hair. He had a beard. Right, right, he right. had a weird hat. You know, he looked like he was in a rock band. I get it. If I were to make my own Dracula, I would probably go in a completely different direction because everybody wants to have their Dracula have his own thing. You know, not be the Bella Lugosi Dracula. But I, I love that. You know, how many years has it been? You know, it's it's ninety been, years. Yeah, it's been almost ninety years. And when we think of Dracula specifically, I mean, a vampire can be anything. You know, if, if Near Dark. And, and, and Lost Boys taught us anything. It's that a vampire can take any form. But when we think of Dracula specifically, my brain always comes back to like the tuxedo, the cape, you know, the pendant around the neck. You know which one kind of nailed it the best out of all of them was Blackula. Like that yeah. really it would be cool if we could get there one day and watch that movie and, and do an episode because that plays it as straight as this, like straight up and down all the morals and, and social issues baked right into that culturally like it's great it's a great version it's a great metaphor and i think that's like probably the best like modern take on it like in a long time yeah i i would definitely like to do that as a bonus episode for sure so let's please keep that in mind i think that will wrap us up for this episode i mean is there anything else you'd like to add 
Oh, so th there's just one minor detail that I wanted to talk about uh, during the, the death scene of Dracula. Yeah. Um, I, I love the concept that Van Helsing made the stake from his coffin. I think I mentioned that earlier, but just the idea that like it's Dracula's one safe space and he used it to kill him. Like, <laughs> there's just something like, why did it have to be a wood coffin, man? Like you should have sprung for like some iron or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the only thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, again, I think that ties into some of the, the convenience of the swift finale. But I think it's great because the stake through the heart became huge. Right. I'm having trouble remembering. I watched this movie like a bunch of times already, but does Van Helsing specifically talk about a stake through the heart? He says find something to drive through his heart. And he didn't say it had to be made okay. of wood or anything. Got it. So like he's like, I'll just use a piece of his coffin and like find me something to hammer it in with. Yeah. Okay. So then yeah, this is maybe the first visual representation of uh I'm trying to think of Nosferatu. It's been a while since I've seen that. No, too. in Nosferatu, they trick him to stay awake until the sun comes up and That's it's right. the, the rays of the morning light that do I'm in. <laughs> I don't think that's from the book either. I think they made that up for that movie. I think Dracula walked around during the day for the most part, but again, I haven't read the book yet. Yeah, okay, so when, between this and Nosferatu, we kind of get more pieces of that puzzle that over time we've uh, accepted as being like the rules of vampires, you know, daylight and stakes through the heart and, and holy water and all that. So yeah, okay, I think that's it. I don't think I really have anything left to say except that Dracula is one of my all-time favorite universal horror films. I mean, we should do a ranking at some point, but I think Dracula ranks number two for me overall. It's it's one of the only, one of the few five-star films, in, in my opinion. It's just, it does so many things well. Uh, again, it's not a great adaptation, but I think it is a phenomenal film. The fact that we're still, like, talking about it and the fact that the, like, Bela Lugosi's performance is still what we think of as Dracula uh, almost, uh, you know, 90, almost 100 years later. We can't ignore that, right? Like, that... This, this film is so important. It's one of my all-time favorites, for sure. Yeah, I love this movie. I hadn't seen it in a couple of years. It was great to revisit it. I loved going deep on Dracula and everything. And I'm looking forward to these sequels. I've not, I can't, I can't recall if I've ever seen the Dracula sequels. So I'm looking forward to. I know I've seen all the Frankenstein ones and all the uh, Mummy ones, and so there's some I have. But I think those are ones that I'm not up on yet. So when we get there, I'm very excited to see uh, what happens in the world of Dracula next. What's going on there? Yeah, and we're, and we're not going to see Bela Lugosi again until 19, the 1940s. This will be, you know, kind of later in our podcast. But uh, yeah, Bela Lugosi only played Dracula twice on screen. It was in this and then in uh, Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. But he did play a vampire again, directed by Todd Browning. At yes, one he point. did. So I think it's Mark of the Vampire. And I think that's a remake of London After Midnight. Like what happened is Todd Browning kind of remade a couple of his silent films, some of them that got lost. Well, they weren't lost at the time. They're lost now. But like some of his sound movies are remakes of his silent movies, and, and that was one of them. You're absolutely right about that. Mark of the Vampire, which came out in 1935, was Todd Browning's talky remake of London After Midnight. So we won't get the Lon Chaney version of that film, probably, but uh, if we want to see Todd Browning take a second stab at that particular story, we can check out Mark of the Vampire, which I have not seen, and now I'm very interested in seeing it. 
looks awesome. Todd Browning ended up doing some work with Lionel Barrymore too along the way, and like that's one of my favorite actors of the era as well. Like, I was he... I was just about to say <laughs> Lionel Barrymore is in Mark of the Vampire. I missed his name. So all right, well there we go. With that, I think it's I think it's time for Mike and I to creep back down into our coffins for our month long slumber. We will reemerge on Friday, December twenty fifth to discuss James Whale's 1931 production of Frankenstein, starring Boris Karloff. And what a Christmas present that'll be. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MonsterMadePod, on Instagram and Facebook at The Monsters That Made Us, and you can email us at TheMonstersThatMadeUs at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Cologne. Mike, where can listeners find you online? So you could find me and all the other shows I'm on at CageClub.me, Facebook.com slash CageClub, or at CageClubPod on Twitter and Instagram. Now that the election is over, uh, it's safe to follow me again on Twitter if you want. I'm at the underscore Mikester on Twitter. But uh, most of the things I tweet now are show-related and get retweeted by the main show's feed. This episode was great. I'm looking forward to the next episode. Uh, Dan, do you want to tell them a little bit about our new merch? Yeah, so we now have uh, brand new t-shirts on TeePublic. And you can find the link for that at the aforementioned Twitter and Instagram accounts. In the bios, there's a link for that uh, for our TeePublic store. So you can get a t-shirt, you can get mugs, you can get uh, a big giant tapestry for your wall if you want to. We've got a whole bunch of merch there that you can get. If you want to support our show, you can also become a patron on patreon.com slash the monsters that made us. Another great thing you can do is uh, leave us a review on iTunes and give us a five-star rating and uh, leave us some comments and uh, let people know that you enjoy the show. You know, word of mouth is, is maybe going to be the best thing for us to get the word out there. For all things Cage Club related, you can head over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And before we go, we would like to wish you a safe and happy holiday season and stay spooky, everybody. 